For all my Hulkamaniacs that have stuck with me through the thick and thin, train, said their prayers, and eat their vitamins, be a survivor, man. Don't smoke, it's a joke. Hello, hello, hello. Happy 2018, everybody. This is Sean, and you're listening, of course, to the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast, in case you uh, didn't know the name of this podcast, or maybe your podcast feeder screwed up and gave you the wrong show. Well, no, this is never the wrong show. I'm so glad to be talking to you. Notice that I said happy 2018. I didn't say happy new year, because... I don't want this year to be happy for you just when it's new. I want it to be happy for you all the time. I never notice how people always emphasize new. Happy New Year. In other words, we're saying, you know what? Eh, I don't want you to be happy once the year is no longer new. I want you folks to be happy all the time. But uh, anyway, we got two games for you this episode. We are going to be talking about Chicago Basement, programmed by Clark Otto who is known better as Franco Dragon on Atari Age, and Astro Fighter, programmed by Bob DiCrescenzo, also known as Pac-Man Plus on Atari Age. So, uh, first show of the year, and uh, so what's new? Well, I'm really excited because, uh, well, recently I got a message from Andy Ryerson from Super Podcast Brothers. He was asking me about Super Cobra for the 7800. I said, what? And apparently he had purchased it from Good Deal Games. So I went to gooddealgames.com and ordered myself a copy of it. And while I was at it, I ordered the book Downright Bizarre Games, Video Games That Crossed the Line, which is written by Michael Thomason from Good Deal Games with a foreword by the late Keith Robinson. I just got the package the day before I'm recording this. I haven't really had a chance to uh, take a good look at it. I haven't had a chance to play Super Cobra yet. But uh, I did flip through Downright Bizarre Games. It is such a fun-looking book, and I recognize at least three games that are in this book as being games from the Atari 2600 that I actually highly enjoy. Well, actually, no, two of them are from, for the 2600. The other one is for uh, the 7800. Uh, Ninja Golf is in here. I love that. I don't like ninjas. I don't like golf, but I love Ninja Golf. And uh, what else? Tax Avoiders. And, um, the other, uh, communist mutants from space. I love those two games just cause they're so not the usual thing you'd ever see, but, uh, this book looks like so much fun. Michael Thomason, who wrote the book, uh, he also runs good deal games. He autographed it for me. Sean, thanks for crossing the line with me. And then he drew a little, uh, Pac-Man and dots and a monster. And underneath that, it looks like there's a, a Tetris piece or something, an L-shaped Tetris piece with a little action mark that kind of indicated that it fell down. Uh, I'll post a picture of this in the show notes and probably on the Facebook page, possibly on Twitter as well. Oh, and uh, off in the distance is uh, my beagle, Ruthie. Uh, she's busy playing with a squeak toy, so if you hear squeaky sounds, uh, that's what that is. We think she's 13 years old. We, we don't really know how old she is. We adopted her from a beagle rescue. Um, about nine and a half years ago when they thought that she was four years old, they don't really know anything about her. The vet agreed that she's probably four. Maybe she was three when we got her. So we're kind of guessing she's 13. She's still a puppy and uh, she's still very playful. She's squeaking her toy like nobody's business. But, uh, and, and you might notice that I am kind of upbeat and there is a good reason for it. Of course, the 
package I got in the mail from Good Deal Games helps. And also, also, there is a lot going on in the Atari 7800 homebrew world. For one thing, there is an Ultima-style RPG in progress by Steve Engelhart, also known as Atarius Maximus on Atari Age, and he's the genius behind Dungeon Stalker. He's writing an RPG called Legend of Silver Peak, and the ROM is a whopping 512K, which means you can't even run it off of a uh, Mateos cart. I think you might just have to emulate it if you want to try it out. I, it might run off a crocodile cart. I'm not really sure. Or a cuddle cart. But it's done completely in 7800 basic. The only thing is, I don't like RPGs, but I know I'm going to have to cover this game eventually. Because you know, it's a homebrew for the 7800. But it does look like a fantastic undertaking. Especially if you like RPGs. Also, there's a computer game from the 8-bit era called Serpentine, and an Atari 7800 version is on the horizon courtesy of Mike Sarna, also known as Rev Eng, I think that's how it's pronounced, and he's the guy who gave us Time Salvo. Really looking forward to that. TEP392 is working on a 7800 port of the unofficial Donkey Kong sequel DK2K, and Synthpopalooza's Skyscraper 2115 is once again in progress. He's been working off and on on that one for a while, but that's back in the development phase. Uh, Synth Papalooza, you might remember, did the music for Bentley Bear's Crystal Quest. There's also a 7800 Venture in progress and a 7800 version of the 8-bit title Laser Blast X. Both of those titles are coming from Video 61, who sometimes have Combat 1990 available. Judging from the screen caps, these things are looking pretty sweet. But uh, I can't wait to see those, too. And of course, probably the biggest news ever, ever, in the homebrew world. Kurt Vendel posted on Atari Age that the XM is finally shipping this month. He's only going to be shipping a few so far because he doesn't have... uh, the supplies in yet to build the uh, XMs for all the pre-orders yet, but he's starting slow. And as he gets the supplies, he's going to start shipping them out. So, uh, wow, that's going to be pretty exciting. And for those of you who don't know what the XM is, it's basically Kurt Vendel's reinterpretation, if I'm not mistaken, of what Atari would have put out as the expansion module for the 7800. Some of you with a 7800, you might have a 7800 where if you look on the left of it, there's a slot for an expansion port. Some of you have a 7800 that has the slot, but no actual port. And then you have people like me. I have two 7800s, actually. One backup, one that's permanently plugged into uh, a TV set here in my home office slash recording studio. And uh, doesn't have a cutout for a slot, doesn't have a slot at all. But the expansion module that Kurt is building actually plugs into the cartridge port. It's going to feature a Pokey chip on board, or if the Hokey ever gets finished, which is the fake Pokey, I guess, that will be on board, as well as a Yamaha sound chip. So that'll be pretty sweet. It's going to have some extra RAM. It's going to have high score cartridge functionality built into it. It's going to be pretty sweet. I can't wait. My pre-order has been waiting for a few years now, but uh, wow, it's amazing that it's actually happening. Oh, Froggy is still pending. There's a chance that's going to be coming out this year. Can't wait for that. And wow, there's a lot going on. You know, it's almost as if somebody heard me say 
that I'm running out of games to cover and that this podcast is going to be taking a hiatus for a while while these games are being produced. It's like they're probably saying, oh my goodness, this podcast is going off the air. We better hurry up and crank out some more homebrews. <laughs> At least I'd like to believe that. I'd like to believe that. I know that's probably not true at all, but still, it's fun to believe, right? Anyway, since um, I last talked to all of you folks, I haven't really done a lot of gaming. I haven't. I just haven't really had time. The only thing I really did was I took a trip to Underground Retrocade the day that the previous episode was released. My wife got me a gift card for Underground Retrocade. Yeah, they now have gift cards now. They're going high tech. Uh, it wasn't a gift certificate this year. It was a gift card. So I was really happy to get that, of course. Uh, my wife and my mother-in-law and I went to see Star Wars The Last Jedi, and all three of us were just floored by it. If my wife decides that uh, she needs to see it again, I will, I will lead the way. I really will. Absolutely loved it. And I'm not even a, a science fiction fan, not even a huge Star Wars fan either, but it was a fantastic movie in my eyes at least. Other than that, not a heck of a lot. Pie Factory Podcast just recorded a new episode for the first time since November, unless you count the bonus episode we did, so watch out for that on the horizon soon. And uh, really, that's all I have to say right now. And um, I just want to go right into the topic for today, well, topics. So you know what? Let's start with Chicago Basement. Before we talk about Chicago Basement, though, we need to talk about The Incredible Hulk. Uh, wait, what? Well, just bear with me. Hear me out. Long has it been rumored that Parker Brothers had worked on The Incredible Hulk for the 2600. The first rumors came about in early 2009, as far as I can tell. Screenshot mock-ups had been found, but they were just that. Mock-ups, not necessarily actual screenshots. Also, someone using the handle Sparky on the Classic Gaming Collectors of Canada website forum said that he happened upon some rare 2600 game boxes, including one for the Incredible Hulk. He went back and picked up what was left of the boxes, apparently some of them had been sold, but the Incredible Hulk was one that he picked up. He linked his photo bucket page to show pictures of his haul. Um, sadly, that link no longer works. Whatever the case, it had been confirmed that a box for The Incredible Hulk by Parker Brothers does indeed exist, and a quick search online will point you to the pictures. But beware of the picture of the back of the box because it has screenshots from a graphics hack of another game trying to make you think that it's The Incredible Hulk, but it's not really. According to Digital Press, The Incredible Hulk was scheduled to be released in the summer of 1983. A press release for the Consumer Electronics Show said, and I quote, Players take the role of Bruce Banner in this challenging video game. Whatever danger approaches, Banner can change into the Incredible Hulk. Players must maneuver Banner through increasingly difficult missions. At any moment, Banner can become the Incredible Hulk and must face the perils of this change. And uh, that's what the press release says. But anyway, further proof that the game was in the works included an entry in a Parker Brothers Atari catalog. There's a picture of said entry on Atari Mania, and I'll link that in the show notes. Phil Orbanes, who was an executive at Parker Brothers at the time, said that the game was likely shown at the Consumer Electronics Show in some form or another. 
He said it was typical for developers to get a playable demo resembling the intended final product ready for trade shows, although it wasn't unheard of to have the demo being played off of a hidden VCR just to fake it. Interestingly, I wasn't able to find a single mention of the game on AtariProtos.com. But uh, that's great, Sean, but this is an Atari 7800 podcast, and what does this have to do with Chicago Basement? <laughs> well, I'm so thrilled you said that. The phrase Chicago Basement refers to kind of an inside joke on Atari Age about a rumored basement in Chicago where someone allegedly has a copy of the elusive The Incredible Hulk prototype. And uh, no, it's not my basement. I don't even really have a basement. Well, there is a basement in my uh, apartment building, and um, I don't have anything in my storage unit there other than uh, Christmas decorations and uh, grilling utensils and things like that. No, uh, not basically nothing that really plugs in. So sorry, it's not my basement. But uh, getting back to uh, the topic, the game Chicago Basement was based on that joke, as well as some ideas from Keith Carlson, also known as Retro Gamer 81081 on Atari Age. As for the game Chicago Basement itself, it takes place in a, um, well, basement in Chicago. According to the manual, and I quote, within the city limits of Chicago, there lies a rumor of a basement full of treasure. Not just any treasure, mind you, but one that would make a classic gamer think it's all a dream. Prototypes of game systems, unreleased games just waiting to be picked up by somebody. That somebody is you. The game is, um, in a way, a variation on the fast food type of games that uh, Clark Otto has done in the past. You move around the room, you gather objects that are moving past you while avoiding things that will harm you. The objects you want to collect include Atari 2600 systems. Uh, unfortunately, they don't look like those uh, crazy rainbow-colored six-switch prototype systems. Uh, oh, well. Uh, they also include the Hulk himself and some other objects I don't quite recognize, unfortunately. But basically, here's a good rule of thumb. If it looks at least partially rectangular, grab it. But if you cross paths with something harmful, you'll be docked some health points. You start with 12,000 health points. Once your health points get down to zero, the game is over. And you see a message on the screen that says, great, now I made myself look like a idiot. And uh, that's part of the inside joke. That's taken from a discussion thread on Atari Age titled, What is the Chicago Basement? All lowercase letters, no punctuation. And the original post reads, and I quote, all lowercase letters, no punctuation. I recently heard about this place called the Chicago Basement, and it has Atari 2600 prototypes. If anyone knows more about this place, I would be much appreciate it. <laughs> and uh, it's basically a discussion thread that really gets nowhere, and uh, with various responses, including from this Atari wizard chap who doesn't use any punctuation or capitalization at all. And uh, I think he said he was 12 years old. And uh, basically, at the end of the entire thread, the end of the entire thread, his final message is, again, all lowercase letters, no punctuation, well, almost no punctuation, says, great, now I made myself look like a idiot, dot, 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 frowny face. And then the thread was locked. So that's what that message is all about. Oh, but what are the harmful enemies? Well, rats, for one thing, and that does really ring true for Chicago. It was recently named Rattiest City. 
And yeah, um, in the residential parts of the city, there are signs up all over the place asking residents to make sure their garbage can lids are secure and that they pick up after their dog's business so as uh, not to attract rats. Thankfully, that's not a huge problem in my neighborhood, but I do see a rat run across the street from time to time. Anyway, you may also see a centipede run across the room, too, so avoid that sucker because you are not armed with arrows or anything. So unfortunately, in this game, you cannot shoot the centipede and make it turn into mushrooms. Avoid spiders, too. And there's another enemy you might encounter. Um, well, the manual describes the enemy as a guy infamous for ruining a baseball championship series. And, uh... That kind of contradicts what Clark says in the development thread in Atari Age when he actually says that it's Steve Bartman. It's kind of a contradiction because Steve Bartman did not ruin that Cubs game of 2003. First of all, if he hadn't grabbed the foul ball, somebody else in the crowd would have. Just watch video footage and you'll see that just about everybody in his vicinity was reaching out for it. Second of all, if Steve Bartman or anybody else in the crowd for that matter hadn't caught the ball, well... Given the trajectory of the ball, neither would have Moises Alou. Third, and let's face it, the Cubs just lost their cool. I mean, really, you're five outs away from going to the World Series, and you let that little thing destroy your concentration, and you blow it for the next game? Jeez, here I am. I'm someone who doesn't even like baseball. I'm going on about that. I mean, get over it, Sean. The Cubs did win the World Series in 2016. It's over. It's done. Back to the show. <clears throat> Anyway, you can replenish your health points by eating a deep dish pizza. Remember, this takes place in Chicago. Well, um, the manual says it's a deep dish pizza, but it doesn't look like a deep dish to me. The graphic is a bird's eye view of a pizza, and you can clearly see the cheese and toppings, but a true deep dish pizza doesn't look like that at all. The toppings, including the cheese, are actually supposed to be under the sauce, which means, uh, Technically, the cheese and the pepperoni and stuff, those aren't really toppings, I guess. They would be ingredients in that case. And um, because I am the person that I am, I have to go on for a bit about deep dish pizza. Generally, it's believed to have been invented by Ike Sewell, who sold it at Pizzeria Uno in downtown Chicago. Although, as with the origins of many other local cuisines, uh, buffalo wings in particular come to mind, there is some disagreement as to whether that's actually true. But for those of you who never had a deep dish, it's truly something to behold. The pan that they use to make deep dish pizza is practically a cast iron bowl. It's very deep, hence the term deep dish. The crust is a bit thicker than what it is on your normal typical pizza. Many people think that you need to use a knife and fork to eat deep dish, but uh, I usually eat it by hand as if it were any other standard pizza. And take my advice, those of you who haven't had deep dish, but are thinking of trying it someday, make sure it is personal sized, personal sized. And I have to say it because of this. Some years ago, my wife and I were having lunch at Pizzeria Due, which is Pizzeria Uno's uh, second location downtown. It's just uh, a block away from the original Pizzeria Uno. Oh, by the way, Pizzeria Uno and Pizzeria Due downtown are the original there's a corporate version of Uno called Uno Chicago Grill that's actually run out of the uh, Boston suburbs. And uh, don't go there. Just take, just invest in the real thing, folks. But uh, anyway, so my wife and I were having lunch at Pizzeria Due, and we order our pizza. At the table next to ours, there was a couple who lived in Manhattan. And they're uh, judging from their accents, they were British, but they lived in uh, Manhattan in New York City. 
They had no idea what they were getting. They ordered a large deep dish pizza. <laughs> at Pizzeria Uno, you only get deep dish. They don't have thin crust, as far as I know, at least. So if you order a large pizza at Pizzeria Uno, you're getting this massive behemoth. And when the wait staff brought it out to their table, these two people had this look of horror on their faces. They each had one piece of it, and they're like, okay, we can't eat anymore. The waiter comes out and says, hey, can, can, can I put that in the box for you? They're like, no, 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 no. Just take it. Just take it. Just take it. <laughs> My wife and I theorize that that happens all the time at Uno and Due, where people who don't know what they're doing uh, do that, and they end up with this big, huge, uneaten pizza that they probably feed to their staff in the back. But uh, yeah, personal size, folks. Of course, there are many independent pizza places in Chicago, but there are four main places that specialize in deep dish. There's Pizzeria Uno, Pizzeria Due, like I said before, they're believed to be the first. No one's disputing that, I don't think. And when you go to Uno or Due, when you walk in, the menu is right there in the doorway, and you have to place your order before they seat you, because there, pizzas are made to order, and they take 45 minutes to an hour to make, so they want you to order right away. There's also Gino's East. That's another big place. Um, their thing is deep dish pizza with the crust made of kind of a cornmeal texture. And there's Giordano's, which is my personal favorite. They have a really awesome buttery flavored crust on their pizza. They call it stuffed. And the reason they call it stuffed is because it's the regular deep dish crust with the ingredients like cheese, pepperoni, whatever else you have on it. And then the tomato sauce. But under the tomato sauce, there's another thin layer of crust. So basically, they're stuffing the crust, so they call it stuffed. And then there's Lou Malnati's. And Lou Malnati used to work at uh, Pizzeria Uno, but many years ago, he left Uno and started his own joint, and it's called Lou Malnati's. They have several locations around the city. And actually, their first location is outside of Chicago in Lincolnwood, just across the north border of Chicago. And uh, they have deep dish too, but their deep dish is actually kind of thin. It's thicker than thick crust, but thinner than your standard deep dish. It's still rich in filling, though. Still would recommend a small size for that. Uh, they also use the cornmeal style of crust. And something about Lou Malnati's. I don't like Italian sausage at all. When I order pizza, I'm a pepperoni pizza guy. But Lou Malnati's, I love their Italian sausage. I actually like their sausage better than pepperoni. But uh, they got some really good stuff. Interestingly enough, though, my favorite item on the menu at Lou Malnati's is their chicken club salad. Best salad I ever had. Love that stuff. Anyway, getting back to Chicago Basement, I kind of have a guess that the eat a pizza for restoring your health thing is borrowed from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles video game. The manual says that if you see a pizza in the room, but it's out of reach, just exit the room and go back into it, and it might end up in a different place where you can reach it, because the objects in the room are generated randomly. The basement has four rooms, each of which are accessible through a door in the room. The graphics are a bit on the crude side in the game, so it might not be obvious what the door is, but it's the object that looks like a bunch of capital L's grouped together. The manual hints that there might also be a hidden floor that'll restore your health. Graphically, the game is very basic, as with most of Clark's games. Very, very minimal sound, too. Use the joystick to move in any direction, and the fire buttons don't do anything. All they do is start the game. 
and it's about as homebrew as you can get. The labels are grayscale, printed from a home printer, and they're cut out manually on standard paper, and the manual is simply an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper folded in half, again grayscale, and printed out on your standard office supply store paper. And uh, that's Chicago Basement for what it is. Very simple game, uh, and really, if you've played, say, Fat Axel, it's really the same game, except you can move to different rooms and you have that health restore option. It's basically that same kind of feel, same kind of vibe. I'll put a link to the discussion thread in the show notes. You can download the ROM. I don't know if Clark still has the um, game cartridges available for sale, but you can reach out to him. Uh, Again, his uh, Atari age handle is Franco Dragon. So we talked about Chicago Basement, so we better talk about the other feature of this episode, and that is Astro Fighter. But first, a little bit about the arcade version of Astro Fighter. Astro Fighter was released in October 1979 and is the first video game manufactured by Data East. I believe we talked a little bit about Data East in episode one, Beef Drop, but having said that, Astro Fighter came about as a result of a collaboration between Data East, who released the game in Japan, and Sega Gremlin, Gremlin Sega, however you want to call them, and they released the game outside of Japan. Of course, Sega would later expand on the Astro Fighter game and release Astro Blaster, and you can hear more details about that in episode 25. But anywho, Astro Fighter is a fixed 2D space shooter in which you battle four waves of invaders per level. You move left and right with uh, buttons on the control panel, and of course there's a fire button. It's a standard Galaxian-style shooter to an extent. Uh, You shoot at invaders, they shoot at you, and gradually they make their way toward you. There are a few twists, if you will, though. For one thing, if any invaders manage to get down to where you are and escape from the bottom of the screen before you can shoot them, that round actually repeats, but your ship's position is bumped up a little bit on the screen, giving you less room between yourself and the invaders. Also, bombs occasionally fall your way, so not only do you have to avoid the invaders and their shots, but you also have to avoid or shoot the bombs. Uh, The invader's standard fire, though, you can't shoot that away. You just have to dodge it. The invaders move in certain patterns, and each type of invader has its own pattern. The first group of invaders is going to have a different pattern from the second group, second group's going to have a different pattern from the third, and blah blah blah. The first wave consists of blue invaders. Uh, Well, actually, they're more of a teal, really, uh, especially because the background of the screen is royal blue. But these invaders have a pyramid formation. You'll have to deal with 11 blue aliens. And next you get two lines of six purple invaders each. That's the second wave. And the third wave consists of green invaders, which have the most difficult attack patterns to deal with, given how often they crisscross over each other. It's it's a pain, trust me on that. But as with the second wave, there are 12 invaders in this third wave. And finally, the fourth wave consists of three rows of five yellow invaders. After the fourth wave, you face the GS mothership. It actually actually says GS on it. You need to shoot the center of the ship in order to proceed to the next level. When you do successfully shoot the mothership... 
A tether appears between you and the mothership, and you refuel. Since it's an enemy ship, I'm guessing you're stealing fuel from it somehow? You're siphoning? I don't know. But, oh, uh, speaking of fuel, yeah, that means that you also have a fuel limit. Every time you shoot, you use up a unit of fuel. If you run out of fuel, the game is over no matter how many lives you have left. You start with three, and you get an extra life at 5,000. The only way to refuel is to survive four waves and then shoot the GS mothership. Uh, what does GS stand for? Uh, uh, I, I, I'm guessing Gremlin Sega. I, I don't know. I ride a GS scooter with my haircut neat. Anyway, I, I should have done more research, but having said all that, there were three different versions of Astro Fighter in the arcades. The first version had 16K ROMs, the second version had 8K ROMs with a different colored fuel gauge, and the third version was the same as the second version, except that instead of getting 60 points for destroying a bomb, you'd get 300 points for every 7 bombs you destroy. And uh, while we're at it, we might as well talk about point values. Depending on the wave, you get a different color of invaders, obviously, like I said before. The blue invaders are going to score 20 points each. Purple 30, green 40, and yellow 50. And of course, depending on which revision of the arcade game you're playing, you'd get either 60 points per bomb you destroy, or 300 points for every 7 bombs you destroy. As for the GS mothership, well, um, this is where things get kind of goofy. If you shoot at the GS ship once and hit it, you get 950 points. But if you miss, you only get 300 points when you hit it. And by hit it, I mean hit it in the middle and then refuel. You get a 10,000 point bonus if you miss your first shot at the GS ship, but hit it with the 55th shot that you shot since the beginning of that particular level, or when your most recent new ship happened, whichever was most recent. Oh, wow. For such a basic game, that's such a confusing little strategy. But that is Astro Fighter. Uh, that's all you need to know about it. Pretty simple, right? Well, let's move on and talk about the Atari 7800 conversion of Astro Fighter. So we all first got wind about the Atari 7800 Astro Fighter on July 26, 2015, and uh, it was without any real fanfare. Bob simply posted the ROM and 15 screenshots from the game, and uh, the game was apparently completed at the time. The screenshots wouldn't really render, though, so Trevor reposted them. It was apparent that the game had been in development for a while because people had played the game at Classic Game Fest in Austin in August 2014, almost a year earlier. The cartridge and the artwork even existed at the time, and S. Ramirez 2008 posted pictures of that on July 28th. The manual was posted on September 1st, a PDF of it, and on December 29th, Atari Age user Jinx discovered that despite the notification on the artwork that Astro Fighter supports Atari Vox, apparently for high score saving, he couldn't get that to work. It turns out that that was erroneous. None of Bob's games up to that point had supported Atari Vox. Albert apologized for the oversight, and then Mark Oberhäuser apologized as he was the designer of the artwork. And really, honestly... That's pretty much all there is to the development history of Astro Fighter on the 7800. So let's move right on and talk about the finished product, which, um, well, is pretty much identical to the arcade version. 
The attract screens are there. The fonts are there. The only real difference I can easily see is that the 7800 version is shorter and wider, which is to be expected given the dimensions of a horizontally oriented TV screen versus a typically vertically oriented arcade game screen. Bob got the colors down, the shapes of the ships are perfect, and the sound is remarkably similar to that of the arcade version. In fact, judging by the last bullet point under helpful hints in the manual, the 10,000 point bonus is even included. It seems that Bob's version of Astro Fighter is based on the first version of the arcade game, given the colors and that you score points for each bomb rather than a large sum for every seven bombs. On the 7800 version, you can choose from three difficulty levels. Normal, which is on par with the arcade version. Easy, which starts you out with less enemy fire to dodge and fewer bombs, which Bob calls meteors. And it gives you a more fuel-efficient ship. And there's Hard, which according to the manual is, and I quote, only for the most seasoned players. Increased enemy firepower, a lot more meteors, and faster fuel consumption. You can choose between a one-player and a two-player game, and you can also choose whether to start with three or five lives. And because I usually like to acknowledge high scores on games, it appears that the highest recorded score for Astro Fighter on the 7800 was Toilet Tunes, using the settings Normal 3 Lives, and he scored 4,710. And that was posted to Atari Age on July 23, 2016, as part of the 7800 High Score Club Season 8, and it was Game 18. During that one week, they were actually playing two games, Pole Position 2 and Astro Fighter. As for my opinion on the 7800 Astro Fighter, if you're a fan of the arcade version, you will absolutely be a fan of the 7800 version. It's virtually identical. The game itself overall, and this is both the arcade and the 7800 version, I personally don't like. It's It, it just doesn't really do much for me. It's It has nothing to do with it being difficult. It's more like, you know what, Astro Blaster is a much better game. Uh, the gameplay is so much better. This is no reflection on Bob at all. Again, he did a pretty much exact duplicate of the arcade version. I was never able to successfully refuel an Astro Fighter. I'd always lose my last life on the screen with the mothership. So yeah, it's uh, not that great. I mean, I don't let difficulty be a determining factor in whether or not I like the game, unless it is so difficult that I can't even get any enjoyment out of it. Uh, I do get some enjoyment out of Astro Fighter though. I really do. It's just not one of my favorite games in the world. But again, if you like the arcade version, you'll absolutely like the Atari 7800 version. So that's my opinion. Now let's hear other people's opinion on not only Astro Fighter, but also Chicago Basement. I got some feedback from Gambler172, Walter, over at Atari Age, who himself is a 7800 home brewer. As usual, he's short and simple. Both are good games. Astro Fighter is a great arcade port. Chicago Basement is a great homebrew. No top 10 titles, but really good games. Greetings, Walter. And hey, thank you for your thoughts, Walter. It was uh, very good to see um, a response from you there. No top 10 titles? I mean, yeah, I can kind of see that. Uh, neither of these games necessarily being in people's top 10s. I can dig what you're saying here. And Save2600 says, uh, I don't own either, but since you also ask for thoughts, Astro Fighter. Like Moan Cresta, this is a shooter that's a wee bit too meh for me. 
I can totally appreciate it for what it is, along with its place in history at all, but wouldn't sit and play such a game today. I really like Astro Blaster, though, and other early shooters, such as Astro Invader, which has yet to see a port for the 7800. Someday, I hope. But with the better shooting games available in the system, Astro Fighter is one that I think I'll continue to pass on. Chicago Basement looks like simplistic fun and love the humor here. Judging by the gameplay video, uh, I'll link that in the show notes, by the way, looks to be kind of like a fast food type of game where you're picking up certain things while avoiding others. Guess I don't know too much about this kind of game as I don't do emulation, own a 7800 flash cart, or otherwise pay super close attention to the 7800 work in progress scene. But I get the impression games like this are never really finished or polished or meant just to be cute little mini games or demos as programmers cut their teeth learning a system. And that's not meant to be a rip at all, just not always my thing, smiley face. And thanks, Save2600. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying there. And that's exactly how I look at uh, a lot of Clark's work so far. They're short, simple games. It looks like uh, someone trying to basically get a feel for programming in the 7800. And you gotta applaud that. You gotta. Someone out actually getting out there. He cranked out a lot of games, too. I might just have one episode where it's nothing but a bunch of uh, Clark Otto Franco Dragon games. But uh, we'll see how that goes. By the way, Astro Invader. Yeah, I've noticed that myself, that there isn't really, I don't think any home ports of Astro Invader. I might be wrong about that. But those of you who aren't familiar with that, I think it's a Stern game from the early 80s. What happens is there's a kind of a mothership that flies out from the screen. And in the middle of the screen, it drops, I don't know, I don't know if they're bombs or what, but what happens is when it drops these objects, they kind of travel to the left of the screen, to the right of the screen, and then they kind of fall down into kind of a holding tank. And these holding tanks can hold stacks of these objects. And once the holding tanks fill up, anytime another object goes into that holding tank, it pushes one of those little things down. And you have to shoot that thing before it comes down. And if it comes down and hits the ground, then it basically electrocutes the ground and if you're close enough to it, you get electrocuted. Oh, it's a maddeningly challenging game, but it's a lot of fun. I, I play it at uh, Underground Retrocade a lot. It's it's fun. It, it feels like juggling when you play it, though. <laughs> it's almost a Twitch. Maybe it is a Twitch game. I don't know. But I also heard from TrekMD, Eugenio, who says, Hello, Sean. Well, I offer a hello back to you, Eugenio. Well, the holidays are behind us and things are back to their normal routine. As I'm writing this, we are having our Miami winter, air quotes I'm doing right there, with lows in the 40s at night. Yes, I know these are mild temperatures for those in the northern part of the U.S., but that is darn right cold in Miami. All you have to do is go outside and see everyone wearing huge winter coats, scarves, and even knit caps. I welcome the change, though, and appreciate that it is as good as it is for us here. No snow to shovel to go outside, though you may end up having to clear iguanas to move the car out of the garage. Yep, iguanas. These animals actually freeze at the temperatures we're having here now. And uh, let's see, TrekMD gave me a uh, URL. Let me see what that looks like here. It looks like Ruthie took a break from playing with her. Oh, the URL is a news story about iguanas. Uh, that are falling down from the trees and stuff. Oh, man. Uh, I'll share that link in the show notes. Anyway, Eugenio goes on to say, but how about I change topics and give you some feedback on the two games for today's podcast? 
Astro Fighter, and Chicago Baseman. Astro Fighter is a title that was developed by Data East for release in Japan, but with a global release by Gremlin Sega in 1980. The game is a fixed-screen shooter that has four different waves of enemies that the player must face, followed by a refueling stage. The latter is accomplished by destroying a ship with the letters GS, Gremlin Sega, ideally with the first shot for the greatest bonus score. Each attack wave of enemies has ships with different designs that shoot at the player's rocket with missiles and bombs. By the way, thank you for that word, missiles. I, I should have said that instead of saying, oh, standard fire. <laughs> anyway, you can see which wave you're on by checking an indicator at the top of the screen that displays the ships from each wave. To keep things interesting, the game also has the player's fuel gradually decrease as things advance, so it is important to keep an eye on this since running out of fuel costs you a life. This is also why the final stage is a refueling stage. So how does the game translate to the 7800? Quite well, actually. Bob has done a fantastic job adapting the game to the system and has brought the arcade experience home with some quote-unquote advantages. You get to choose how many lives you start with, three or five, as well as the skill level you want to start at, easy, normal, and hard, each level alters the firepower aimed at your ship as well as the fuel consumption rate. There is the option for one or two players, and the game can be played with either a standard 7800 or 2600 controller. Visually, the game comes as close to the arcade as possible. The scoreboard wave tracker fuel gauge is modified from what the arcade has given the differences in screen orientation, but it all has the same information. All the ships are excellent approximations of the arcade versions, and the sound effects are almost an exact replica, yes, with the Tia chip. Astro Fighter is a cool shooter, but not an easy one. If you're not familiar with the game, I suggest starting at the easy level before venturing into anything more quote-unquote skilled. Overall, another excellent arcade translation and excellent title to add to your 7800 game library. Chicago Basement. Who knew homes in Chicago had basements that were important enough to have video games made about them? As the story goes, there is this particular basement in Chicago that was said to contain various retro gaming prototypes, including the ever-elusive 2600 version of the Hulk. Can you imagine? 2600 Hulk! The whole thing was nothing more than a joke over on Atari Age, but it inspired Franco Dragon to make a game based on an idea by retro gamer 81081 and this basement story. The game was programmed using 7800 basic. Oh, thank you for mentioning that. I don't, I don't think I mentioned that before. Thanks for mentioning that, Eugenio. Uh, and it finds the player controlling a character who has to move about four different rooms in a basement in Chicago, which contains prototypes of systems and games. The player must collect as many of these as possible, but must also avoid the spiders, rats, and centipedes that inhabit the basement rooms. There's also a certain someone called Steve Bartman who hangs around the basement and who must also be avoided. Should either Steve or any of the pests touch you, you lose health points, and if you lose all your health points, the game ends. You can restore some of your health, though, if you're able to find and eat some deep dish pizzas that float by every once in a while. So, how well does this game play? Well, it is a simple game of exploration. The rooms are not really detailed, though, and the walls look really nice. There are stairs you take to move between the rooms. Oh, is that what those are supposed to? Okay, yeah, I can kind of see that now. <laughs> anyway, and, there, and then there are all the items moving about for you to either avoid or pick up. 
Yes, even the elusive Hulk can be seen around, and should you have no idea what the Hulk looks like, be not afraid. He is a green guy with a very clearly marked Hulk word on him. All the characters and items are nicely rendered in multicolor sprites as well, so it is fairly easy to know what you're looking at. Sounds are sparse, but they do the trick. Now, I don't have the cartridge for this game, so I use the ROM that is available on Atari Age. I don't know if that is the final ROM, though. I say this because I had some issues playing the game. First, collision detection seemed to be off. Some of the pests appeared to touch me, but no health points were lost. And some of the prototype items vanished before I even touched them, but I still got the points. Also, I ran into a glitch related to the health score. I had my character sit at one spot where all these prototype cards kept coming in and was just raking up points. At times, I was touched by a pest and lost some health. When my health was about to hit zero, I got hit by another pest, and the health simply went up to 999,999. ,999. So I just let my character sit there all night long. The score was some absurd number as I never died. In any case, while the game was made for just fun, the game is simplistic and not one that held my attention for long, particularly because of the health bug. And uh, thank you, Eugenio, for your thoughts on that. I didn't notice any bugs when I played it. I have the cartridge myself, but I didn't really notice any bugs. It could be that the ROM that you played was uh, indeed not the final ROM, or it could be that uh, from one 7800 console to the next, one game could work one way in one system, but work completely differently in another. So it could be that too, but I don't know. But my theory about that health bug is that you might've been close enough to zero that, um, once you got hit by something that would take away, let's say, I don't know, 500 points, but you were all, but you were already at 400 health points. What might've happened was because it went into negative territory, it might've reset the variable that counts it and uh it might have actually made it go into the negative territory um in programming there are things called signed and unsigned integers and things like that and if it's some if something is unsigned it means that it's always positive but um it might have something to do with that i'm sure that it's a a simple bug to fix given my knowledge of programming and stuff i don't know about 7800 basic though but that's my theory right there going to astro fighter your recommendation of starting at the easy skill level before going into anything more skilled oh yeah yeah if you're not familiar with astro fighter yeah this game is a beast start easy and then work your way up to normal now as i'm recording this you with your miami winter in the low 40s today in chicago in chicago which is notorious for its Cold winters and extremely hot summers. In January, today, it was 60 freaking degrees out. And the temperature plummeted down to the 30s by the time I left work, too. So things are crazy everywhere. They're, they're just absolutely crazy. And yet, the common joke around here is March, when it hits 40 degrees in Chicago, people run out with their shorts on. <laughs> But yeah, seriously though, I mean, last night, last night I took the dog outside when my wife and I took the dog for her nighttime walk, I was in shorts outside. It was probably in the forties, but I was wearing shorts and just a long sleeve t-shirt and that, and that was it. So that, that's how things are these days. It's just crazy. No snow to shovel. Well, I gotta tell you, I actually don't mind shoveling snow. I live in an apartment building with a 24 seven, um, on-site guy who does all the maintenance and stuff. So I rarely have to shovel, but 
I never disliked shoveling. I, I like snow actually. When it's winter, I expect it to be snowing out. So I love snow and I don't mind shoveling it. And uh, what I do when I go out and shovel is I have my music with me or I listen to a podcast. In fact, I was listening to the Retro League podcast. I have a bunch of episodes I had to catch up on. One of the episodes, one of the co-hosts is from the Chicago area. And he was talking about how he listens to podcasts when he shovels snow. <laughs> so, hey, that, that's, that's an advantage of having to shovel snow. And I'm also very careful. Uh, it's pretty standard for uh, if you turn on the news in the winter, you'll hear warnings about being careful when you shovel snow because a lot of people get heart attacks. And yeah, I make sure that I don't overload my shovel and all that. I just you know, do quick swipe, throw it out, quick swipe, throw it out, you know. But thanks again, Eugenio, for your feedback. And um, thank you, everybody who uh, who contacted me. Oh, by the way, I did hear from somebody, I think it was Safe2600, who said, you know what, when you post feedback requests, it would help if you posted a link, especially for some of the more obscure games so we could get the ramen. Yeah, that is a wonderful idea. I can't believe I never actually thought of that before. I'm going to start doing that from now on. But anyway, that's uh, this episode's Feedback. So that wraps up the first episode of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast of 2018. I have some people to thank. First of all, thank you for listening. And I also want to thank the following people who have been so kind enough to sponsor this podcast monetarily via Patreon.com. Thank you, Ed Ladden Controllers. Thank you, Kyle Etter. Thank you, Richard Valdez. Thank you, Richard Grounds. Thank you, Gray Defender, and thank you, Jimmy G. If you would like to help support this podcast monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash homebrew78. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can give a dollar a month or however much you want to give to help keep this podcast going. And uh, what else can I say? Uh, you can reach out to me via email. The address is homebrew 78 at fab4it.com and fab4it is spelled f-a-b then the number four in your numeric keypad if you have one and then it.com you can get the show notes for this episode and all prior episodes at homebrew78.fab4it.com on the web my twitter handle is homebrew78 youtube channel is homebrew7800 Coming up next, we will be talking about the E.T. book cart. And while we're at it, I figured let's talk about another Clark Auto game. And I've been making enough remarks about it. They might as well talk about it. And that's going to be Roof Pooper. Roof Pooper. That's going to be episode 29. And I think for episode 30, I want to talk about Fail Safe, another Bob DiCrescenzo title. But um, thank you again for all your support, folks. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the kind words you've said to me um, over the past year. I'm quite frankly surprised I got uh, so much response from this. But uh, while you're at it, make sure that you're also remembering the hardworking homebrew developers. Give them the support they deserve. I'll talk to you again in uh, two weeks. Of course, Sega would ladder. Of course, Sega would ladder. Ladder?
Of course, Sega would later ex- <sighs> Of course, Sega would later expand on the Astro Fighter game and release Astro Blaster. 